as many of you know from the earliest days of church history, that the church began venerating certain people, especially martyrs, by the way, as being more holy than others. They were special and came to be what is called canonized by the church, which means they attained, they and they alone attained sainthood, never mind that the Bible says that everybody who's a Christian is a saint, be that as it may, they started to recognize a certain few. Well, Matthew was one of them. You perhaps know him as Saint Matthew. You might be interested to know that Matthew became the patron saint of tax collectors and bankers. Having been a banker, I'm personally offended to share my saint with an IRS agent, but that's the way it goes. What picture comes to mind when you think of St. Matthew? Perhaps this one on the screen. This is a fairly popular one. Go to any number of impressive cathedrals throughout Europe. There are mosaics and paintings and, well, and stained glass everywhere. Lots of images of apostles, including St. Matthew. You can perhaps see a different picture in your mind, right? There he is standing, hands folded, eyes lifted, heavenward, looking all pious. The picture is complete with the ever-present robes and halo. He is, after all, Saint Matthew. But here's the question, who is this Matthew? You see, I have to say, I think Matthew would be the first one to throw a rock through the stained glass window bearing his image. Saint Matthew Who is he? He's introduced to us in our text this morning found in Mark chapter 2. You can go ahead and be turning there, Mark chapter 2. Well, while you're turning, let me remind you where we are in our ongoing study of this particular book. Mark's purpose is clearly to present Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. After an amazing introduction through the first part of chapter 1, Jesus began teaching and doing some miracles, all designed, teaching and miracles, to prepare to prove who he was. He was doing things with great authority. Last week, we saw even divine authority. His teaching was unlike the scribes. It was with with power. His miracles were absolutely incredible. He began, remember, by declaring war on the forces of evil, driving out a demon right there in the synagogue in Capernaum. In this gospel, he began his healing ministry by healing Peter's mother-in-law. And then we were given a kind of a summary statement. He healed many people of various kinds of, of diseases. And in fact, the chapter ended with, the, with healing a man uh, from the dreaded disease of leprosy. <laughs> Unbelieving. Remember that? He reached out and, and touched the man. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the man became clean. What a, what a great story. Uh, from there, we jumped into chapter 2 where we saw Jesus do something absolutely amazing, something that caused the, the Pharisee, uh, the, the religious leaders, to have a hernia. And the people to, to proclaim, we've never, we've never seen anything like this before. Yeah, he healed a, a paralytic. The, the man stood right up in, in front of them. But more, Jesus actually forgave this man uh, his sins. And the religious leaders were aghast. This is blasphemy, they said. No one can forgive sins but God. And they were right on one count. 
then wrong on another. Yes, it is true that only God can forgive sins. They were right, but this was not blasphemy. They were wrong because Jesus was God. He had the authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive your sins. Through these miracles, Jesus is teaching some very specific truths. We've been calling them messages in the miracles. Uh, Probably the two most outstanding messages have have been these thus far. First, Jesus is the Christ, the the Son of God. We've seen that. He has demonstrated His divine power by healing people of uh, of every disease and driving out demons and, and then ultimately forgiving sins. In all these miracles, you see, Jesus is dealing with the effects of sin. Things like disease and demons and ultimately death all points to his ability to deal with sin itself. Jesus does have the power to say, your sins are forgiven. But a second very important message in the miracle in miracles has been, has been this. Jesus was building a kingdom of people that you would never expect. He does not fill it with religious people, righteous people. Rather, He fills it with broken people, you know, demon-possessed people and and women who were not highly esteemed at this time, and and lepers and, and, and paralytics. And later we'll find in Gentiles and centurions, what are you doing? This morning he's going he's to fill it with tax collectors and sinners. You see, his message of the kingdom does not, his message of the kingdom does not belong to self-righteous, self-sufficient, arrogant, religious scribes and Pharisees. Some of you remember years ago, it was actually about 15 years ago, when we looked at what we call today Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It was found in Matthew chapter 5. There Jesus said the kingdom does not belong to who you think it belongs to. Rather, it belongs to, and it only belongs to, broken, poor in spirit, hungry, thirsty people. It belongs to people who know they're sinners. It belongs to people who know they need a Savior. It belongs to people who recognize that Jesus is their only hope. So we have seen Jesus heal, choose to heal the rather marginalized of society because they, you see, are the ones who were coming to Him while the religious opposed Him. And I want to say to you this morning, if you came to Jesus any other way than this, then you don't get it. If you came to Jesus because it was the family thing to do, it was the cultural thing to do, after all, we live in the U.S., it was the cool thing to do, you were part of a youth group, then perhaps you don't get it. If you came to Jesus because you were essentially a good person and you thought Jesus would be very, very lucky to have you on His team, then you don't get it. Jesus will only have the broken, the spiritually destitute, the sinners in His kingdom. Last week, I told you that we have 
we were beginning the first of five stories, this is now the second, where Jesus does something incredible and the religious don't like it. So this morning, we're going to find Jesus calling broken sinners, yes, again, into his kingdom, and the religious, surprise, surprise, are not going to like it. And I believe that we have in these verses today the very heart of the gospel, the, 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 the truth that is nearest to God's heart, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And so are you. And if you don't think that, you don't get it. Jesus came to save people who were sick and knew they were sick, people who are sinners and know they're sinners. Look at the text with me found in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and following say this, and Jesus went out again by the seashore, that is the Sea of Galilee, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Notice the emphasis on teaching again. And as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him, and it happened that he was reclining at the table in Matthew's, Levi's house, and and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When, When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Hear the accusation in their voices. Hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And then some of the most incredible words ever written, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me break this text into four very simple parts. First, we're going to meet St. Matthew, and then we're going to go to Matthew's party, and I'm going to suggest that's maybe what we need to be doing. And then third, we're going to see the, the response of the religious, the, the scribes, the Pharisees to this party, and it will be a real shocker. And, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Let's begin by meeting this Levi. Who was he? The other Gospels tell us his name was Matthew. So I'm going I'm to call him Matthew because that's the name we know him by. He was the son of Alphaeus. We see here that he was sitting in the tax collector's booth. So understand that St. Matthew was a tax collector. Now immediately you may think, well, as much as I don't really like paying taxes, IRS agents aren't that bad. I don't, I don't hate them. I, I mean, if one... If one moved in next door, I'd, I'd probably be nice to him, maybe. Well, feelings about tax collectors in Matthew's day were a thousand times worse, and for very good reason. You see, during this time, Palestine had been under the oppressive rule of Rome for about a hundred years, and one of the worst aspects of the Roman uh, oppression was their system of taxation. It was, it was methodical, it was relentless, it was, it was ruthless. And I'm going to take a few minutes to kind of go through it so you can kind of get this picture of our St. Matthew. This is how it went. Roman senators, other high-ranking officials, 
uh, in Rome would, would buy from the central Roman government at public auction the right to collect taxes in a given region at a fixed rate. It was a fixed rate for a period of five years. It was actually like having a franchise to tax. Now, now those who held these taxing rights were called publicani, from which we get our word publican, not republican, <laughs> publican. Uh, the, the, the publicani then would turn around and hire other people, get this, usually citizens of the country where they have just purchased the tax franchise, they would hire citizens there to collect the money. So if you had a tax franchise in Palestine, you would likely hire a Jew. Now, here's an interesting question. Why would you buy the right to tax? Here's why. Because it was at a fixed rate for five years, and anything that you could collect, extort, above the, the fixed rate lined your pockets. It was very lucrative. These, so they would hire these tax collectors, and, and these tax collectors had the same agreement with the publicani that the publicani had with the Roman government. Whatever above and beyond we could collect will line our pockets. It's profit. It's starting to get just a little bit of a snowball effect. We are just starting. Both the publicani and the tax collectors obviously had strong motivation to collect as much tax as possible. They extorted the people knowing that they had the full authority of the Roman government behind them gets worse. Many tax collectors would accept bribes from the wealthy to, to, to uh, reduce their taxes, falsify their giving records, or their taxation records. And so the tax collectors had to tax the lower classes even more to make up the difference. You're starting to understand why tax collectors were not held in high esteem. Now, there were actually two categories of tax collectors hired by the publicani, okay? Senate, publicani, tax collectors, two kinds, ready? First were the gabai, which is what you wish they would do, gabai. The, the gabai collected general taxes like property and income taxes. They were just like um, our property and income taxes today, don't like them, everybody pays them. There was also, however, the poll or the registration tax that was paid by every boy over 14, every girl over 12. Uh, yeah, it cost to be a girl. The, 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 the second kind under, uh, of tax collector under the publicani were the mokes. They, they collected a wide variety of taxes, sales taxes, import taxes, toll taxes on roads and bridges, uh, boat docking fees, business licenses, well, pretty much everything. They had almost unlimited authority. They could tax anything they wanted. They were allowed to stop you, go through your packages, ta uh, tax anything of value, when you came off the Sea of Galilee, they could tax the boat, they could tax the fish, they could even tax the dock that you were uh, attached to. If you were traveling, they could tax your donkey, they could tax any slaves that you might have, they could tax all of your goods. They were not, are you beginning to understand, they were not very well liked. Now there were, are you ready, two kinds of mochas. This is getting uh, uh, overwhelming and annoying. Two mochas. First were the great mochas. He was the guy who would hire other people to do his work because he did not want to get his hands dirty. So he would hire other people to extort you. Then there were also the small mochas. These guys didn't want to pay any middleman, so they, 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 they wouldn't hire anyone else to do it. They did their own dirty work. They did the assessing. They did the collecting. They were always in contact with the people 
who hated them. You can begin to see with this system of taxation, when everybody has their hand in your pocket, how tax collectors were hated. Guess which one Matthew was? The small mocas. He was sitting in the tax collector's booth. He was the uh, guy who was actually extorting the people, taking money from people. He was lower than the gum on the bottom of your shoe. He was despised. As a result, like his fellow tax collectors, Matthew was barred from the synagogue, not allowed to go there. He was forbidden to have any religious or even social contact with his fellow Jews. He was ranked with, ready, unclean animals, which a devout Jew would not even touch. In other words, he was in the class of pigs. You see, because of his position, he had to deal with those dirty, rotten Gentiles. And because he was seen as a traitor, a liar, a a cheat, and a thief, he wasn't even allowed to give a testimony in the court of law. He was an extortioner. He was a traitor. He was greedy. He was unclean. St. Matthew, you understand, was a weasel. He was ranked with the lowest of human society with, well, sinners and prostitutes and, and Gentiles. He was completely ostracized by his own countrymen, and understandably so. And to this man, this slug of society, this dirty, rotten, low-life sinner, Jesus had the audacity to say, follow me. And Matthew becomes not only one of his followers, he actually, he actually becomes one of the 12. And can you believe it? Here we are 2,000 years later reading, studying, and learning from his particular story. In fact, the first book in your New Testament was written by him and carries his name, Tax Collector Matthew. And you say, wow, that is incredible. I mean, he was rather awful. That's right. Because you see, this is the story of grace. Why did Matthew, Jesus says, follow me. Why did Matthew leave everything right there in the tax collector's booth and follow Jesus? I have a theory about that. You see, Matthew was from there in Capernaum. He he had perhaps, uh, he had been there the entire time that Jesus was doing all of those miracles and doing all of that teaching. He had heard about Peter's mother-in-law. He had heard about everyone else that was being healed. And then he heard that story about the paralytic and that unbelievable claim that Jesus, Jesus, can you believe this, can forgive sin? It's even possible that Matthew had heard some of the teaching from a distance, but after all, he was a tax collector. Even though the message of repentance and forgiveness sounded good, certainly it could not apply to him. St. Matthew, hardly. You would not have given him the time of day. And Jesus actually looked at him and said, follow me. I can see Matthew, can't you? Who, me? Yeah, Matthew, you. You follow me. And he could not get out of the booth fast enough. When forgiveness was offered, he ran for it. Why do I say that? Because Luke tells us that he left everything to follow Jesus. 
You see, I don't see him gathering up the day's prophets, stuffing them in his robe, and, 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 and walking out the door. He ran out the door, having left it all, and once he left his post, he left it for good. There was never, ever any turning back. But that was okay. You see, sinners who know they are sinners are quick to respond to the call of Jesus. Let me say that again. Sinners who know they are sinners are quick to respond to the call. They know they're unclean. They know they're dirty. They know they need forgiveness. You see, Jesus was willing to accept when others were quick to reject. In fact, I could say it like this. Jesus is, is quick to receive Jesus is quick to receive most many people that most churches would frown if they walked through those doors. Jesus is constantly in the business of calling into his kingdom people that we would never pick. <laughs> they aren't clean. They aren't acceptable. They aren't respectable. And those kinds of people respond. You see, People who are most acutely aware of their need will respond most quickly. You have to be aware of your need before you would ever seek the solution. Matthew was a sinner, and all of society kept it before him. He knew he was a sinner, but Jesus said, you meet the requirements for my kingdom. Matthew, you would never be the subject of stained glass. Follow me. Maybe that's you this morning. You know your life, all of it, both your secret and your public life. You know your sin. And you think yourself too bad to be a follower of Jesus. I have some incredibly good news for you this morning. You are exactly the kind of person that Jesus is looking to populate his kingdom with. It brings us to our second point, Matthew's party. Verse 15, Matthew had found grace. He had found forgiveness. He was clean for the very first time in his life. And you say, well, wait, wait, wait. He, he wasn't a tax collector all of his life. You see, you don't get it. It doesn't matter when he became a tax collector. He had been dirty all his life from conception just like you. And so now he was clean for the very first time in his life. And so he throws a big party. He wanted everyone to know what he had. That's what found people do. That's what rescued people do. They want to share what Jesus has done. So he invited all of his friends. Now think about it. What kind of friends do, well, sinners have? Other sinners. The place is full of tax collectors, your general run-of-the-mill pagans, sinners. Quite possibly, you know, check it off. Murderers, check. Robbers, check. Drunkards, prostitutes, the irreligious and ungodly riffraff of the area. But one thing we can be quite sure of, there were no religious people there. <laughs> they would not be found dead inside that house at that party. See, the word sinner at this time was a technical term to refer to anyone who did not obey the law of Moses or obey the tradition of the elders. These sinners were just like, well, they were just like Matthew, who knew they needed a Savior, and they were there to, to meet him. Can you imagine what kind of party this was? No doubt there were lots of laughing. 
and crying at the same time. <laughs> can it possibly be true? Can it, can it be possible that we can find forgiveness? Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you found yourself in a room full of sinners? Oh, I don't mean here. <laughs> Joe Aldrich in his book, Lifestyle Evangelism, says it takes the average Christian about 18 months before he has no non-Christian friends. Isn't that cool? It takes about that long for us to separate from the dirty pagans and immerse ourselves in the Christian subculture and become so religious that we never have to rub shoulders with unbelievers. Oh, I might work with them. I would never socialize with them. Is that right? You would never find most Christians at a party with tax collectors and sinners. After all, we might get contaminated. It was probably because of a party like this that Jesus, or parties like this, that Jesus um, gained the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard, a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Let me ask you a question: Can that be said of you? <laughs> no way. Good for you. I've never stepped inside of a bar. Never been to a frat house. Never been to this kind of party. You would never find me at some of those seedy places on King Street on Friday or Saturday night. Good for you. And I want you to know that I think that is exactly where we would find Jesus. He went to where sinners were. He kept himself, you see, from clean, self-righteous, people who would never realize they needed a Savior. Uh, let me be clear. Jesus was not a glutton. He was not a drunkard. But He went to where sinners were because sinners know that they need a Savior. Brings us to our third point, the response of the scribes, uh, Pharisees, to this party. Surprise, surprise, verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Let me just stop right there. I just remembered Jim Folks, who was a missionary to Zambia for about 38 years, said that there in Zambia, they would regularly have what they called Matthew meals. What do you think those were? Those were intentional meals where you would invite people that were not believers over to your house to eat. What a great place. What a great way to share the gospel. Well, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? This was not a question, by the way. It was an indictment. As we are seeing, the, the religious, we, we saw it last week. We're seeing it this week. We can see it for three more stories. The religious are always opposing the work of God. The Pharisees, I want you to understand, were not inside the house. You would never find them there. They were outside looking in. They were separated from sinners, and therefore, uh, they were separated from Jesus. They were condemning everything that was going on, because that's what self-righteous people do. They condemn others, all the while thinking it makes them look good. 
these were the guys who were thankful that they were not like other sinners. Remember the story, Luke chapter 18, the, the, the Pharisee goes to the temple and, and there's a tax collector. Uh, there's a sinner there. I, I thank God that I'm not like this tax collector or other sinners. Good for you. These were the guys who kept all the rules that they had made up, by the way, thought they were doing it right. These were the guys that actually become resentful because Jesus never showed them favor. If he were a man of God, I mean, certainly he would throw us a party and we could together condemn uh, others. They were expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful and support the righteous. They had little place for one who accepted and transformed the sinner and dismissed the righteous as hypocrites. In which category do you fall? Even though it was more of an accusation than it was a question, Jesus answered their question, and he did it in two ways, two ways that are absolutely vital that we catch. First, he answered it with a physical analogy. He said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And I want you to think about that. How much sense would it make uh, for a doctor to go through years of medical school and residency, which, by the way, I hear is a breeze, and never spend time with sick people? <laughs> what? Never go to a hospital. That doesn't even make sense. What kind of doctor would spend all of his time with healthy people and refuse to associate with sick people? It is sick people who need doctors. People who are well do not need doctors except for maybe a good round of golf. Too many churches across this country are for clean people who want to play golf. It's for clean and shiny people. People who have it all together who just add a little Jesus to their already wonderful lives. And sinners feel completely out of place there. Don't call that a church. That is not a church. So call it a club. Jesus is saying, I want my church to be a hospital where spiritually sick people can come to find grace and healing and forgiveness. This is, you see, what we are supposed to do. This is what we are supposed to be, spiritual doctors who, having received grace, dispense it freely. The church needs to be not a place that condemns sinners. We stand against sin. Don't misquote me. But not a place that condemns sinners. It's who we were. It's frankly who we are. The place it accepts, more than that, it seeks out sinners. It's what Jesus did. Matthew's gospel. Remember, Matthew's, was, Matthew's gospel, he, he was there at his own party, and he wrote his own gospel, and he added something else. He said, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. God wants us to show compassion to sinners in fact, I would suggest how we treat sinners as evidence of the fact that we have received grace, meaning we can spend hours here every Sunday singing wonderful songs of praise and worship. We can spend hours together talking about the wonderful truths of God's Word and wow each other's with doctrinal truth. But if we don't love sinners, if we do not have compassion for them, we are wasting our time. Both are necessary, worship and discipleship, certainly so, but also caring for sinners. 
Second way Jesus answered the question is the very core of the gospel, the very central truth, the very central truth of his first advent. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. In other words, Jesus is saying to these Pharisaical scribes, you need to understand something. I did not come to call you. I came to call them. I came to call sinners. Now, it is, very, it is critically important that we understand Jesus is not saying that there are two kinds of people on earth. Uh, righteous and sinners, those who need saving and those who, well, don't, who can make it on their own. No, 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 no. The book of Romans makes it incredibly clear that there is none righteous, not even one. Rather, Jesus is saying there are two kinds of people on earth, sinners who think they are righteous and sinners who recognize they aren't. We're all sinners. Two kinds of people, sinners who think... They are righteous who don't think they need a Savior and sinners who know they are sinners and know they need Christ. And so they come in their brokenness, mourning over their sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and He gives it freely to them and to them alone. Paul said it this way, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. It is when we realize that, it is when we can say that, that we understand the gospel. It is then and only then that we can be rescued. The bottom line is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for good people. It is for bad people who know they are bad. People who know they are broken. People who know they need fixing. People who recognize that Jesus is their only hope. And they follow him. And so, as we close this morning, I recognize that there are potentially three groups of people here today. First, I suspect that most of you here today are saved. You're rescued. You're redeemed. At some point in the past, you realize you were bad. You were a dirty, rotten sinner, just like St. Matthew. I don't care if you were saved when you were five. You were still a dirty, rotten sinner. just like St. Matthew. You came to faith in Christ, seeking His forgiveness, and you chose to follow Him. This morning, my message to you is quite simple. Are you not glad? Are you not thankful? We're going to observe communion in just a moment. Communion provides an opportunity for us to remember and give thanks. Second group of people here today may be modern-day Pharisees, and I fear that many of our churches are filled with modern-day Pharisees. You never really thought yourself that bad. You've kind of depended on doing it right and, and, and making yourself acceptable to God. You've gone to church. You've, crossed, you've dotted all your spiritual I's and, and crossed all your spiritual T's, and you feel pretty good about yourself. In fact, truth be told, come on, you're, you're just kind of superior uh, to, to others. You're not nearly as bad as other people and not nearly as bad as you could be. In fact, you think you're pretty darn good. My message for you this morning is this. Jesus did not come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. If you are relying in any way on your own goodness, you will not make it because you have none. 
the gospel is not for you. When you realize you're bad, come back, then we'll talk. It is for people who realize their own sinfulness. And when you realize you cannot do it on your own, that despite all of your acts of external righteousness, you are rotten to the very core, the gospel then can become your only hope. Finally, third group is this. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel an awful lot like Matthew. Not Saint Matthew, tax collector Matthew. You sit in the sinner's booth. Feeling dirty and sinful and rotten. And somehow you have felt yourself beyond the reach of God's grace. I have incredibly good news for you this morning. I want you to hear the words of Jesus right now when he says to you, follow You can be clean. You can be forgiven. God will give you a brand new heart. All you've got to do is ask. Let's pray.